So, how many of us were here last week? Quick show of hands. Wonderful. Probably about half of us. Well, last week we had a much more exciting passage, didn't we? Last week we had a really exciting passage. Last week we had uh, storms and, uh, and boats and uh, mortal danger and uh, demon-possessed pigs and all sorts. What an exciting passage we had to deal with last week. And this week it seems actually that yeah, it's, it's all right, but it's not of the same scale, is it? It's not quite as exciting. It's not quite as ground-shaking, it may seem, at first look. But actually, I think that when we look beneath the surface of this passage, what we find is that what's going on here is actually far more exciting than all that stuff we heard about last week. In fact, what's going on here when we just scratch beneath the surface is some of the most exciting stuff that you will read anywhere, not just in the Bible, but in any book you can find. And for those of you who don't read, that counts for movies too. Believe me, they're out there. (laughs) Now, Matthew is writing to a mainly Jewish audience uh, in his book. And in order to fully understand uh, what he intends us to understand, uh, something of the Jewish mindset. We need to understand uh, Jewish thinking of the time in order to understand the enormity of what is happening here. Now, I'm no expert on Judaism, um, but I can only talk from my experience, and I have the experience of meeting with um, some people who, who know a little bit about these things, um, and, uh, and hear from what they say, and I'm just going to share that with you a little later, and hopefully it'll help us just to go a bit deeper, but I acknowledge that there may be one or two here who have much better information or have uh, researched Judaism much more, and so um, if we'd like to chat afterwards and I will bow to your greater knowledge, that would be wonderful. I'd always love to hear more and f- more fully understand um, what the mindset of those first hearers would have been. Because the more we can grasp the mindset and the understanding of those first hearers, the more we can understand what the passage has to say to us. So we see Jesus has come back to his hometown. And that hometown was Capernaum. Jesus was based there for most of his uh, ministry. And it was a much more Jewish place than the place they'd just been. Remember there was pigs, a herd of pigs at at the last place. You wouldn't get that in Capernaum. It was a much more Jewish uh, town. And because of that, uh, he was likely to encounter, and in fact did encounter, many of the Jewish authorities, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And Jesus, when he encounters these people, there always seems to be a, a lively exchange that goes on. That's no different here. There is a crowd as well, but we don't hear about the crowd until the very end. They're not mentioned at the start. Um, but we hear about them at the end because they then make up their mind about what they're going to believe about Jesus. So there is a crowd around as well. And it's into this crowded area which is full of uh, local people but also the uh, Jewish authorities that some men bring a paralysed man to Jesus on a mat. And when Jesus sees this, we're told that he looks at them and sees their faith. their faith. He doesn't look and see the faith of the individual man on the mat. He looks and sees the faith of them as a group. There's a power in corporate faith that sometimes in the West and in our Western thinking we lose sight of. 
But for the Jewish people, the community of faith was central and essential. The Old Testament time and again, it talks about God's relationship with his people and the people's relationship with God. It talks of them as a community. And when the community's doing well, following God, then things go right for them. And when the community turn their back on God, when God's people turn away, things start to go wrong. They're blessed as a community and they're encouraged as a community. Now, it's not to say that our own individual faith isn't important, but perhaps we've lost something of the understanding of the power of faith in a community. There's a real significance to living as part of a community of faith, and it's something we've celebrated today with uh, Josiah's Thanksgiving. As a community, we've welcomed this child to be part of us. We've prayed that God would bless him, help him to grow, and, and even perhaps one day to grow to an extent where he is able to instruct and lead this community, perhaps. Certainly have a, a valid voice and influence within it. Now, individual faith is important, but so is the faith of the community and the support that we can have from it. That man was unable to carry himself to Jesus in order to receive what he needed to receive. He needed to rely on the support of his friends. It was only through their support and their encouragement that he was able to receive from Jesus what he needed. Do we have friends who will carry us to Jesus when we cannot carry ourselves? Are there times in our life when we do not have the strength or the inclination to seek God And yet we have those who gather around us who encourage us and carry us even into his presence. The truth is that sometimes I have doubts. I have doubts about whether God is real. Not all the time, don't worry. It's not maybe just about 70% of the time. Joking. But occasionally I have those doubts. And I have doubts whether God actually cares. And I ask the question whether life would be an awful lot simpler if I just jacked in this whole Christianity thing altogether. Sometimes that's the way I feel. I was going to say that it would mean I'd have to give up my job, but sadly in the Church of England that's not true. But there are moments when I am weak and my faith is on rocky ground. But it's at those times that the community of faith gives me strength to keep going. Sometimes there's nothing in me, but I borrow it from my friends. I borrow it from those who pray for me and carry me at the difficult times. And in turn, I carry them when their faith is tested and weak. Some will say, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't need to bother with that. I can just do my own little faith at home and that's fine. It's just between me and God. Well, in my experience, that works for a short time. But in the long term, those people's faith just ebbs away. And before they know it, they're left with nothing. Just a memory or a shadow of what was. Now, it may be a slight side thought, but let the the faith of these friends and the faith of that small community that brought that man to Jesus remind us that we cannot do this alone. 
Verse 2 gives us an account of what happens. And if you know this story, you'll know that there is more to this story than Matthew tells us. He only gives us a snapshot. Both Mark and Luke record extra details, which will be familiar to us, of a house which is crowded, and friends who couldn't get their, their paralyzed friend into the house, and so they decide to cut a hole in the roof, lower him down, and with all the dust and all the mess and all the problems that come with ripping a hole in someone's roof, Jesus then ministers into this situation. Well, this is the same story, but it seems that all those exciting details have been stripped away. Almost as if Matthew has totally blown a great story. If it was me telling the story, I'd start with the big flashy things first. Hey guys, you'll never guess what happened. We were all meeting around and someone ripped a hole in the roof. It was crazy. But Matthew totally ignores these really exciting details. Why? Why does Matthew ignore the most exciting, shocking, and the best bit of the story? Why does he leave it out? It's because actually it's not the best bit of the story. It might be the most headline-grabbing for those of us who are reading it now, but actually... Matthew is concerned that we don't lose our focus from where the focus should be in this story. In fact, the fact that someone had a hole drilled in their roof of their house is of no consequence whatsoever. What is important about what ha- is what happens when that man encounters Jesus and what Jesus says to him. And we have a clue as to uh, this uh, from verse 3 where Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Something incredibly groundbreaking and exciting has happened. In order for the uh, preachers, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees to say that Jesus is blaspheming. In order to understand exactly what's going on, we need to understand, as I mentioned at the start, that Jewish mindset. I met a rabbi while I was uh, at college training. And speaking to her, we had a great conversation, and we spoke about several things. We spoke about this idea of shalom, which some of you will be familiar with, and also how forgiveness works within the Jewish community. And I'm just going to share those two things with you briefly in order to help us understand exactly what is so groundbreaking about Jesus when he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. So the first idea is this idea of shalom, which is the central idea to the Jewish faith. And I'm led to believe that shalom doesn't just mean peace, as we would say um, you know, shalom is translated to peace. Actually, it means a lot more than that. In fact, shalom is an idea that everything has a place in the world. Everything has the way it should be. And at the very beginning of the world, in the Garden of Eden, that order, that the way everything should be, was broken. And things are in the wrong place. And things have got messed up. Things aren't as they should be now. And the idea of shalom is to put everything back the way it is. So shalom is when everything is in its right place. And this is what the Jewish faith is trying to do, trying to put the world back into the right order. That works um, with the brokenness of the world, but it also works in brokenness of relationships. And that's where forgiveness comes in. You see, in the Jewish mindset, if you have wronged someone... The only person who can forgive you for what has happened is the person you've wronged. 
In fact, when you wrong someone, that person then has a power over you because they have the power to either forgive you or to not forgive you. They can withhold their forgiveness and you will never be forgiven for that thing that you've done wrong. If you can never be forgiven for the thing that's gone wrong, then you can never have shalom. You can never be at peace because there is a part of you, a part of your life, which is so broken that can't ever be repaired apart from by the person who you have wronged. And that's why uh, in Matthew 18, when uh, Jesus is asked, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, no, you should forgive 77 times. In fact, what Jesus is saying is you should forgive every time. There is no limit to the amount of times you you should forgive. Because if you don't forgive, then how can there ever be shalom? How can there ever be wholeness in the world because you are withholding that peace from somebody else? And there cannot be peace in the whole if there is not peace in every single part of it. But this idea that the only one who can forgive is the one who has been wronged is important. Because what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. The only one who can forgive sin is God because he is the one who has been wronged. And when we understand this, we see the dynamite in this passage. See, what's happening is Jesus is saying, I have the right to forgive your sin. I have the right to forgive you for the wrong you've done against God. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God, and I have the right to forgive you. And if you're not convinced by that, then just look at the reaction of those religious leaders in verse 3. They say he's blaspheming. They say that because they understand that what Jesus is saying is, I am God and I have the right to forgive. And for the Pharisees and for the uh, teachers of the law, this is another step for them in their journey, which will eventually lead them to the crucifixion. Jesus then asked this question, verse 4. What's it easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say take up your mat and walk? The, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, they're questioning whether Jesus has the right to say your sins are forgiven. They're saying he doesn't have that right. Jesus is saying, well, what's easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say take up your mat and walk? On the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because to say that, you need, uh, there's no evidence that can prove whether that's true or not. Not in this life anyway. And so actually, if Jesus can't forgive sins, then there's no way of testing it. Whereas to say, take up your mat and walk, is measurable. If the man doesn't take up his mat and walk, then Jesus had no right to say that. He had no power when he said it. You can see. If he does have the power and the authority, the man will walk. But the truth is, the forgiveness of sins is a much deeper problem. Because only God can forgive sins. And at what cost did that forgiveness come? See, we know the cost of that forgiveness. We know what it means when Jesus says, 
take heart. Your sins are forgiven. They didn't know at this point. It was before Jesus had gone to the cross. But we know, looking back, that in order to say that, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was committing himself to death on a cross. Because if he said that and he didn't die on the cross, it would be a lie. The only way sins can be forgiven is through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And here we see what Jesus says to him. is not just a mere, all right, you're forgiven. But it's a commitment that Jesus will die for this man. Truth is that when Jesus sees this man, he sees all of his need. The obvious need to everyone standing around is that that he can't walk. But to Jesus, he sees that this man is in need of a saviour. The truth is that we can do the same. When we look around, we see the needs of the world. We've prayed for some of them today, and we will pray for more throughout the week, I'm sure. And as we look in our newspapers and on the internet and uh, the news channels and all the things we look at, we see the needs of the world, and there are many, many needs. But we need to see that spiritual need as well. See, those needs can be met by God, and we pray that they will. But the need that must be met is the need of every heart. That without Jesus, without his death and resurrection at work in us, we are lost. We are more wretched than even this paralysed man who could not get himself around. Jesus sees a spiritual need, and that's why he addresses it first, because it's the most important thing. But also Jesus meets his physical need. And so he says to him, Get up, take your mat. And the man gets up, he takes his mat, and he walks. The man is healed. And the physical healing is the sign and confirmation that Jesus has the authority to speak those words, but also speak the words he spoke before, to prove that Jesus is not a liar, but he speaks the truth. That this man gets up not only with his body healed, but with his sins forgiven. And again, just at the last end of the last passage last week, we saw that reaction of the people. When Jesus worked that miraculous sign, the people came out and, uh, and asked Jesus to leave their region. They didn't want anything to do with him. Well, here we're showing the crowd again at the end. The crowd see what Jesus has done. They hear the words he has spoken. And what's their reaction? Well, we know the reaction of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. But the crowd themselves say this. They were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. They were filled with awe, and they praised God. The truth is, the same this week as it was last week, and the same as it will always be, that when people encounter Jesus, they have a choice. And it's a choice to go one of two ways, and there's only two ways to go. First is we see what he's capable of, we see who he is, and we choose to turn our back on him. We decide that life would be much easier without him, that we like things the way they are, 
and we turn away and we ask Jesus to leave us alone. Or the second is this. We see Jesus, we see what he's done, we see what he's capable of. We put our faith in him, we put our trust in him, we follow him and we give glory to God. That's the choice that uh, faces all of us. And it's the choice that faces every single person in this world. When they meet Jesus, how will they act? What will they choose? Do I follow or do I ask him to leave? And this, for me, is one of the most encouraging things that we can have in our lives, and uh, particularly in our evangelism. We're talking a lot at the moment about sharing our faith with other people. About the good news that we have within us, not keeping it silent, but uh, spreading it abroad and spreading it wide. This, for me, is the best news. Because what this tells me is that our job is not to make people follow Jesus. We don't have to convince people or find compelling ways uh, or arguments for which they should follow Jesus. No, our job is to introduce people to Jesus. To show them what he's like, principally by how he lives within us. To introduce people to Jesus. And it is their decision about whether they will follow or whether they will ask him to leave. If those two choices were choices that were made by people when Jesus was actually there, walking the earth, meeting people day to day, if those two choices happened then, if even Jesus himself had people who turned their backs on him, then we shouldn't be surprised when we have those same two reactions when we share Christ with other people. In fact, we should be encouraged because in doing so, we're walking that same path as Jesus. This year, let's encourage one another as a community of faith, together, to share the good news that we have in Christ so that we may introduce Christ to many, many people who do not yet know him. Let's not be surprised when some of those people who we share Christ with want nothing to do with him but let's be encouraged because some will and that was Jesus experience too